Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I'm going to be returning to 2 Timothy as we continue our journey through the pastoral epistles, but I want to get this thought on our minds today, and it comes out of the book of Malachi, chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Does that sound like anything you ever saw in the New Testament? That sounds an awful lot like John the Baptist preparing the way, and then the Lord showing up as the God-man in history. And this is, this is being prophesied about 400 years before it ever came to pass. And we see this referenced in the New Testament in the, in the Gospel of Matthew and also in the Luke. So we know that this has come to pass. And he says, The Lord whom you shall seek shall suddenly come to His temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, He shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now this is the God that cannot lie. He's telling them this 400 years in advance. We're looking back on it 2,000 years in the rearview mirror, and it has come to pass. We know that God was utterly faithful in delivering on this promise. By the way, he is referred to as the messenger of the covenant. We've spent a lot of time in recent weeks mentioning the covenant of salvation and that our salvation is a matter of covenant. It's a promise. It's a plan and a promise from eternity past that God decided He's going to save a people. And He cannot depart from the commitments made in that covenant. That's why we refer to Him as the successful Savior. He is the one who fulfills that covenant. And so when we talk about our salvation being covenantal, it's very biblical language. But it's not often referred to, maybe in other Christian circles, there's not as much reference to the covenant, I think. It seems as though people focus more on their personal experience of some religious matter rather than on the covenant that long predated and undergirds any experience you ever had in spiritual matters. So I think that's very important. Continue on in verse 2, "...but who may abide the day of His coming? And who shall stand when He appeareth? For He is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness." Do you see a little picture there of the cleansing work of Jesus Christ on behalf of His people? He's going to purify them. They're not going to do some righteous things so that they can purify themselves and then be able to stand before God. No, they're going to be purified by God so that they can offer up worship to God. You see that? And that's a covenantal view, right? If you view this through your own experience, if you view your Christian faith through your own experience, you might say, well, there was a time when I wasn't living right, and then I started doing right, and, and then things got better for me. Well, that might be true in some experimental sense as you look at your own life. But there's a covenantal underpinning to that that helps you understand why that came to pass in a way that just looking at it through the lens of your experience will never tell you, right? And that covenant is the reason why someone would be born again, why they would ever have a desire to serve the Lord. That all comes from the covenant, right? It didn't come from your decision. Well, I decided, I remember that day very distinctly, I decided to start going to church. Well, if you're looking at Christianity through the lens of your experience, that might be all you see. But if you come to the Lord's house and start saying, wait a minute, there's a covenant that God created before He ever even created the world? 
and that I was a beneficiary of that covenant and that my regeneration and the changing of my heart so that I would have such spiritual experiences in my life was a function of the covenant, not a function of some events that happened in my life. That's a totally different view of your experience. And it's one that you don't have unless you have the perspective of Scripture, which teaches you these things. He is the God of the covenant. And He created the covenant, and it's on the covenantal basis that we are eternally saved. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Now this is talking about the nation of Israel, but if you take the symbology into spiritual Israel, you see God had to do something before the offerings of this Israel could be accepted before Him. Right? The Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please Him. That means an unregenerate man who is not born of God's Spirit does not have faith, the essential element necessary to do something pleasing to God. He may go through religious motions and do all sorts of things that appear religious to the external world, but if they are devoid of faith, they are sin in God's eyes. And therefore, he cannot worship God until God has done this thing for him in advance. You see that? The same way as with the nation of Israel. God gave you faith. And in so doing, he gave you the ability then to be pleasing to him through the exercise of your faith and obedience to him. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swears and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. God's going to come along and do this in this circumstance of Israel here. But then he closes with this statement, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed." See, there's a covenant in place, and that's the way it works in your eternal salvation. If your salvation was resting upon your miserable performance as a human being in righteousness, you wouldn't have much in the way of assurance here. But when you learn that it's part of a covenant, and that God can't change, He can't lie, He can't alter, He can't change the deal on this covenant, and He's going to fulfill on His promises, you start to realize, oh... (laughs) I see the inconsistencies in my life. I see many reasons why I should be consumed. Why God should say, now, you're just not doing good enough. You haven't done good enough to fulfill the covenant. And that's certainly true, but it's not resting on your performance. It's resting on the promises of God. God doesn't change from it, and God got the job done. You see that? So this passage kind of underscores a principle that we're going to see in this portion of 2 Timothy today. And the phrase that I guess is kind of the theme of this message is, He abideth faithful. That's kind of the Bible's way of saying He is a successful Savior. He purposed to save His people. He promised to do it. He put that in a covenant. And He does so and will do so and will bring us to final salvation. And that's all part of a covenant. And we can have hope and assurance and rest in that because He abideth faithful. We will not abide faithful in many respects. You're going to find many flaws in your own personal performance in life. You may find seasons where you said, I was really, things were going great then. I felt like I was really close to the Lord. Then you find areas where you're kind of having trouble and you're struggling with things. If you're trying to assess your own assurance, personal assurance of salvation on this wavering aspect of your personality, you're probably not going to have much in the way of assurance there. You're not going to have any real reason or basis for assurance. But if you realize that He abideth faithful and our salvation is a matter of covenant, then 
you won't have this issue. And maybe that will also be an inspiration to correct whatever performance issues you have in your own life and how you're dealing with things. I think I finished up last time in verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, that's a verse that is often used to kind of say, well, see, Paul believed that if he didn't go out and do a bunch of stuff, God's elect, even the elect aren't going to be saved. Now, first of all, if that is true, then I submit to you that the Apostle Paul is every bit as much your eternal Savior as Jesus Christ was. Because he's placing his ministry in the critical path to the impartation of eternal life for these people he intended to minister to. That's just an unavoidable thing. If Jesus was not a successful Savior, he didn't get the job done, and Paul's got to come along and finish up that Jim Walter home of salvation so that we can be saved now, then I'm telling you, Paul was every bit as much a Savior as Jesus Christ was, and that is a blasphemous notion, right? So that cannot possibly be what this text is saying, though many people will say that about it. I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Well, this may obtain is a term that means hit the mark, to reach, or to master, right? That they'll get a handle on this thing. And it speaks of something they're doing, right? That's another problem. It's in the active sense. This is something they're doing. They're acquiring teaching from Paul's ministry, but they're actively involved in it. They have to embrace all this stuff that Paul gave. That would be a work of righteousness. That would be something they have to do. And that then would be a, a kind of a works-based salvation as well. So you, you're starting to pile up problems why you can't really take the text in this way. But one of the things about that verb is that it is in the subjunctive mood. What that means is this is speaking of a possibility or a potential thing, right? Now, Paul taught that election and the eternal salvation of God's people is an absolute certainty, right? Very much based on things like what came out of Malachi. I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. That's what Paul taught. He taught that the eternal salvation of God's elect is absolutely certain. So he cannot be referring to eternal salvation if he's talking about, well, this could possibly happen or it could possibly not happen, right? This is a really good instance of a verse that speaks of conditional time salvation or gospel salvation. Where you have people who are saved by the grace of God. They're born again. They have the ears to hear. They have God's Spirit living within them. They fear God and work righteousness in this world. But they may be totally ignorant of Christian doctrine and of the truths of the covenant. If it's never been taught to them, how would they know? It's like uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. How shall I? How can I understand these things unless some man come alongside me and teach me, right? That's really what we're supposed to be doing in gospel ministry. It's teaching those that have the ears to hear. And this is what Paul wanted these people to know. He wanted them to understand the preceding things that he had taught, which have to do with God, His grace, salvation is all His, and the covenant. So he wanted them to lay hold of that and become well-versed in it and understand it and have a grasp on it. And I submit that many in Christendom today, a lot of their instability as a Christian disciple arises from their inability to understand that truth. 
If you understand that this is based on a covenant, and covenant is fulfilled entirely by God, that's a totally different understanding of the Christian faith than what many are promoting out there. But it's what Paul wanted them to have, and he thought gospel ministry was very much centered around this idea. Now, we'll keep going. Picking up in verse 11. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. Well, I mentioned back in verse 8 that he mentions, uh, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to this, and now he's kind of referring back to this, the death of Christ and also the fact that Christ is alive and that we live with Him. And we're supposed to believe that issue. The matter of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an affirmation that God has power over life and death, that death will not defeat us, that He's defeated death on our behalf, and that we have a promise of resurrection ourselves. And that's a faithful thing that we're supposed to believe as Christians. Not something, as many Christians are doing today, to just discard. Well, we don't really believe that Jesus rose again from the grave. That seems very unscientific. Well, it is unscientific. It's Christianity. It is a supernatural, miraculous thing brought to pass by a miraculous God who is going to resurrect us out of the graves one day as well. Verse 12, If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. Well, I think this is evidently true. And if you're talking about service in the kingdom of God, there's going to be some measure of suffering associated with that. It may come from your friends, it may come from your family, it may come from your society or from your job. There's going to be some measure of contempt that is heaped upon you for serving God in this world. But there's an aspect of that where if you're in the kingdom and you're serving in the kingdom, you're suffering but you're also reigning. If you're in the kingdom of God serving, you're right in this realm of God's kingdom. You're part of His rulership and His reign in this world. It's a very, very unique thing that it seems very few see in our day. How many of us could also not uh, deny the fact that if we deny Him, He also will deny us? Have you had seasons in your life where you just said, I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to read the Word of God, I'm not going to go to church? Hey, we've got that going on in our assembly right now. It's going on. There's members of our church who are denying Him in that respect. They're just not even coming. And it's a frightful thing. You can deny God and He also will deny us. I think what that means is that there are blessings available to God's people in the kingdom of God provided they press into the kingdom and serve God. Amen. You are not going to experience those blessings unless you do so. It's out there for you. I mean... People recognize this about all sorts of natural things. If I set some goal that I wanted to be able to bench press 400 pounds, which is totally unrealistic at this point. And I said, well, I, I'm just not ever going to work out or do anything. I'm not ever going to try. I'm never going to measure my progress. I'm never going to try to work up from a lower weight and start working my way up. It's evident to anyone that you're never going to achieve the blessing of having gained that much strength. You just never put anything into it. And yet when it comes to spiritual things, people get really, uh, I don't know, they get, they get very disconnected from reality. It's like, I think spiritual things just fall upon me like rain. And every spiritual blessing must be just like regeneration. Like, I'm not ever going to study the Word of God or go to church or do anything that God has for me in this world to build up my spiritual mind. And I'm just going to expect one morning to wake up and say, oh, I just, all of a sudden, I understand the covenant of salvation.
that's not going to happen any more than I'm just going to wake up tomorrow morning and be able to bench press 400 pounds. It's not going to happen. Is God capable of doing that? Yes, He is. But God has created the kingdom of God. He's created His church. He's raised up elders. He's raised up a family of people where you can come and learn His Word and discuss it and be blessed by it and build up the spiritual mind. The expectation that you're going to do absolutely nothing as a disciple and you're just going to expect God to pour orthodox knowledge and wisdom into your head is ridiculous. If any of you went to work and told your boss, you know, I work in uh, technology and a lot of times you've got to, there's always new things coming about, new software, new hardware, new stuff you've got to learn about. And so periodically they, they, they'll say, well, you've got to take this class so you can learn about this new technology and you've got to kind of stay up to speed on this stuff. And this, is, this happens in a lot of different professional settings, whether it's education or medicine or or mechanics or whatever. There's these sort of things you have to kind of keep up to speed on. And if you went to work and you just, you know, you told your boss, yeah, I'm just not going to take any of those training classes. It'll be fine. I, I think I'll pick it up. You did that for a couple of years. I mean, you'd be on a performance plan and they'd run you out of the business before too much longer. Because it's just ridiculous to think that you're going to pick all this stuff up and you're not going to put any effort into it. It's going to require something of you. If you learn anything today, I want you to recognize it's true that He abideth faithful. That's certainly true. It's also true that you're going to have to put some effort into Christian discipleship. And you're going to progress to the degree that you do. And it starts with very simple things like attending the Lord's house. And reading His Word, praying with others, asking questions. A lot of you ask questions and I really appreciate that. But these things are necessary for us to move forward. Bottom line, if we deny Him in those things, He's going to deny us. We're going to have lunch downstairs and those of you who stay, we're going to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. We're going to enjoy talking to one another, catching up, finding out, what, you know, pray for me about this. We're going to enjoy all of that stuff. That is part of service in the kingdom of God, in my opinion. And if you don't go to that, you're not going to get any of the blessings of that. It's not going to happen. So it's very evident that if we deny Him, He's going to deny us many things. There are things that, we, that God has for us out there that we don't avail ourselves of. And we miss out on that to the extent that we do that. So uh, let's be mindful of it. And He says this, If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful, He cannot deny Himself. That's, that verse just destroys all sorts of things that are taught in Christianity today. There's lots of Christians out there say, well, if you stop believing, if you stop believing, you, know, you were going to heaven, and then you stop believing, and now you're going to hell. Now, this verse just completely obliterates that. It's making the point that while God's people have faith, and they do believe, and they're exhorted to believe, and they should believe, if for some reason they get into a state of unbelief, which is totally possible... It's not resting on how strongly you're believing it. It's resting on the covenant, and He abideth faithful. You see that? It's not on whether or not you abided faithful. I'm telling you right now, if it was on whether or not we abideth faithful, I couldn't give any of you a lick of assurance about where you're going to spend eternity. We abideth faithful ain't getting anybody to heaven. We're getting to heaven because He abideth faithful. And why is that? He cannot deny Himself. See, Jesus Christ has done something. 
He has accomplished something. That's why we call him a successful Savior. And for him now to say, well, I, I got this child of God down here. I, I, I gave him faith and he's born again. He's one of mine. But he stopped believing. So I guess he's going to have to go to hell. To do that, he would have to deny something he's already done by covenant for this person. He cannot do that. Malachi said, what? He said, I change not. I'm not going to change with respect to this covenantal arrangement. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. See, it's not based on your performance. It's based on God's commitment to the covenant. So, he abideth faithful. That should give great hope and assurance to all of God's people. No matter where you are today, you might be on a spiritual high. Everything's going great. You feel like you're just serving the Lord better than you ever have, and it's just only going to get better from here. That's great. But your salvation is not based on that. It's based on He abideth faithful. And if your faith is waning right now, and you're like, I'm struggling, everything just seems to be going the wrong way. I don't even feel like going to church some mornings, and it's just not going well for you. Well, it ought to give you strength in that too, because you know what? It's not based on how you feel about it. He abideth faithful. That's the reality of it, not how you feel about it. So that's a great verse. I love it, and I love that theme. And we should take it with us as we leave here today. Verse 14, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. We should be focused on teaching these core precepts of the Christian faith. And when you start striving about words, I think this, there's a lot of different flavors of how you could strive about words. I hear people sometimes say, you know, a minister who's trying to define a word like regeneration or justification or something like that and doing an excellent job of it, others will throw stones at it. So you see, they're striving about words. They're coming up with all these definitions for terms. Well, it doesn't mean that dictionaries are invalid, okay? It does, that's not striving about words. That's actually understanding what the words are. Striving about words might be someone coming in and trying to redefine justification as it's taught in the Bible in a way that doesn't resemble what the word actually means. That would be striving about a word. But we know what words mean and we must know what words mean. The Word of God is communicated to us in the form of words. So word definitions are very important. It's not just is somebody getting out a dictionary and defining their terms. It's not that. It's really talking about unprofitable conversations of all sorts. And this is mentioned again later on in verse 23 and 24. And perhaps we'll take it up there. I'll leave it for now. Verse 15 picks up. So we're not supposed to be striving about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers, which is things that gets people confused, right? Stirring up a bunch of stuff that just confuses people. It's not profitable. But instead we are to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Studying the word of God and understanding what it says and making it applicable and rightly dividing it. There's a right way to handle the word of God. When you speak about right division, it is not what many people have made it out to be in the broader world of Christianity. Liberal denominations would say, well, right division has to do with understanding which things in the Bible are really true and which things are not. So you need a minister up here to tell you, here's a common example. Well, we listened to what Jesus said, but we're not so sure about Paul. He didn't come along till later. It wasn't until the Damascus Road. Jesus was long since gone by the time Paul came in here and started writing all these books of the New Testament. So 
that sort of liberal take on the Bible is coming in and saying, the Bible is kind of a mix of good things and bad things, and we need to discard some of them, right? There's different flavors of this. Some people will, will launch out against Paul, and that's a common one. So they're, what they're really saying is that Paul had a lot of problems, and he, had a, he introduced a lot of errors into the Christian faith, and that is simply not true. But that's one way that people will kind of twist the idea of right division. I've got to divide out all the errors in the Bible, and I'll tell you what's, what's actually true in there. It's also not dispensationalism. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but dispensationalism is a form of Christianity that deals with the text of the Bible in a way that fundamentally says God's plan for the elect or for the eternally saved is one thing, but God has a separate plan for Israel, and that's still ongoing. And you're going to find a lot of things on Facebook particularly related to the events in the Middle East right now going on between the Jews and the Palestinians over there. And a lot of it that's coming from a Christian perspective is dispensationalism. They are saying there's a totally separate plan for the nation of Israel that is ongoing, and it's separate from the matter of eternal salvation. They fundamentally work on taking the Bible and splitting it up into different covenants or agreements that took place over time. And depending on which one you look at, they say, well, there were seven, and some of them say there were eight, and some of them say there were more. There's not total agreement on that, but they'll, they'll talk about a you know, time of innocence and a time of human government and a time of Israel. There's these different eras that they went through and different covenants related to different periods in the Bible. And they're kind of like, you know, God set it up this way and they failed. And they set it up this way and then they failed. And there's all these covenants going on throughout time. And we're kind of now in the church age. To them, the idea of right division is chopping up the Bible kind of in a chronological order with these different chunks of time that deal with different dispensations where God had a certain set of rules and requirements of man at that time. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to unpack that. Dispensationalism is a very deep subject. There's a lot of stuff you can go into on that. I've spent a little time, wasted a little time maybe, looking into some aspects of it. But for the sake of this sermon, I'm just going to say that is not what is meant by right division. Right division is really talking about handling the Word of God as a logical and systematic truth. Right? Now, I'm not saying that you can fully embrace the truths of the Bible simply through human logic, right? But I am saying that what God has communicated to us is logical and systematic. The Bible does not contradict itself. And if there's an apparent contradiction, you've got to do some work on it to understand there's either some context or some subtleties to it that make it so that these things do not contradict one another. And that is the approach that Jesus hinted at in, uh, I think it's John 10, 35, when He said the Scripture cannot be broken. He's in a scriptural argument with a bunch of Jews, and He kind of lays this argument out, and He says, and the Scripture cannot be broken. What He's saying is, if this is the situation, and the Bible can't contradict itself, how do you deal with this, right? Well, if the Bible was full of contradictions and, you know, it's just these mysterious things that don't make any logical sense, 
then the Jews could have very easily said, well, we know that the Bible's full of all kinds of contradictions and antinomies and paradoxes and things like that, so why would you place this burden on us of logically reconciling your question? But even the Jews of that day, as wayward as they were in many of their religious practices and beliefs, they at least recognized, well, it's all got to fit together and make sense. They weren't taking up that argument with him. So that's what we're really talking about. It's talking about taking note of fundamentals of language, which have to do with things like verb tenses, the meanings of words, and it has to do with context, you know. A lot of problems in wrong division, if you will, mishandling of Scripture come from the matter of someone taking a text, ripping it out of its context, and then just saying it to someone else. They'll take a little sound bite, and they won't take the full context of where those remarks were made. And by ripping it out of its context, then you've created a totally different setting for it, and you can then apply to that phrase whatever you want to apply to it. I mean, maybe a good example is something like... uh, you know, John 3.16, when you see people say, well, the Bible says whosoever believeth. That, ju- that just means anybody. No, it says whosoever believeth. That means the ones believing. That's not, unless you believe everybody believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not all of humanity. It doesn't matter that the word whosoever seems to make you think that it means everybody. It doesn't mean that. So, It means paying close attention to these matters of language and context. It also means properly handling elements of symbology. And I think that's part of where dispensationalism kind of jumps the rails. There's a lot of things said in books like the book of Revelation that are pretty esoteric and difficult to parse and hard to understand. There's a lot of symbolic language used there. And if you roll into that book and start reading it and say, I understand exactly how, how this all plays out and what every bit of it means, I would say that's an incredibly good sign that you don't know what it says. And the history of Christianity is littered with people who have taken events of history and tried to say, oh, that is what was going on in Revelation, right? It evidently wasn't because this was people when, when Adolf Hitler was running around in Europe. Well, there you go. Adolf Hitler's the Antichrist. There's all sorts of different applications. People through time would look at prophecies in the Scripture, try to apply it to current politics. There have been untold kingdoms that have come and gone, great evil leaders that have arisen. And I just give you a caution as you start running into a lot of this stuff out on Facebook. I'd look a little bit sideways at some of that stuff. People tend to get pretty fired up about prophecy and like I've got a special line on what this means and it has something to do with right now. And I would have a cautious take on all of that. And I'll tell you up front, there's lots of things in the book of Revelation that I don't understand. I think there are many things about that that have been fulfilled in the past. Some of them may be yet future. I I don't doubt that at all. But when you start running into people who are saying, I have rightly divided every aspect of the book of Revelation and I can map it into the geopolitical universe that you're surrounded by right now, I say just give it a little time, right? Let's give it a little time. Well, right division is talking about handling the Word of God in a logical and systematic fashion that is consistent with its intent. And that's really the key thing. 
It says then, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. I think the profane and vain babblings have to do with things that are contrary to the notions of covenantal salvation that have been previously affirmed here, but all the teachings of the New Testament Scripture, and those are manifold and all around us. And there's a problem with that sort of teaching, false teaching. Their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying, The resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Now imagine this. If you had taught something along the lines of, well, God's coming back and going to take His people home. This is the earliest version of Left Behind, right? You know, the Left Behind series where the Lord's going to come back and and uh, vacuum all of God's people out of into the sky, and uh, those who are left behind are in a woeful state. This is kind of the earliest version of that, and some people were going around teaching that's what's going to happen. And oh, by the way, it's already happened. So that means those of you who are here, it's not going to go well for you. Who knows what other things they taught in conjunction with that. But whatever it was, it says that he refers to it as overthrowing the faith of some, right? He's got some of these people believing things that are so erroneous and so confusing that his, it, he regards it as overthrowing their faith. They no longer have the confidence of what they would have had had they embraced that I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob you know, are not consumed, right? That's the core element of why your faith could not be overthrown because, overthrown because you're, you're, not, looking, um, you're looking, not looking at yourself or what you believe. You're looking at what Christ has done. So, verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, the Lord knoweth them that are His is an important precept that all Christians need to know. And I think primitive Baptists get it wrong a lot of times, even as other Christians get it wrong, maybe in the opposite direction. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. I have seen some of the nastiest interchanges on the internet. Some of them have been directed at me over the years, but sometimes at other people. And if there's some difference in what you believe about some doctrinal matter, maybe Christians are having a discussion, it pretty quickly goes to, you're evidently not a child of God. You're going to hell. I know you're not one of God's elect. You're going to hell. Well, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Not the Lord's people absolutely know everybody that is His, right? That's a real ugly thing. And if you've ever felt some passion in yourself because of some disagreement to want to go there with somebody, you're going straight to hell. That's a terrible, terrible thing to say. It's disrespectful. It's blasphemous because you don't know the Lord knows. That's just all there is to it. They may be living the most wicked life you could possibly imagine externally. They may be doing all sorts of horrible things. They may be unregenerate at this very moment. By the way, you don't know if they're regenerate or not either, right? If you're talking about somebody like that, you don't know. If you're going to this place where you're trying to make assessments about where someone's going to spend eternity, you are stepping over presumptuously into the realm of God. And you're making declarations about things that you don't know anything about. What if you had said that to this horrible person who ended up on a cross next to Jesus Christ? Maybe that person murdered somebody in your family, stole something you spent a lifetime trying to buy. You're just as mad. You think they're the wickedest person you could possibly imagine. And you're standing there going, yeah, you're going straight to hell, buddy. 
Well, if you said that to the thief on the cross, you'd have been dead wrong about it. And you know why? Because you're presuming to pronounce things on people that are not in your purview. I like in the old westerns, we watch uh, Rawhide. We used to watch Rawhide uh, reruns and stuff. And I love old westerns. And a lot of times in westerns, people die. They get shot or they, you know, run out of water in the desert or something. There's a lot of burying people in westerns. And they'll kind of gather around and take their cowboy hats off. And, you know, it's very common that they're like, you know. And many times the character is pretty contemptible. You know, it's like somebody who's been shooting people and robbing banks and whatever. And they're burying him and they're bowing their heads and they're like, God have mercy on his soul. And I think that's the sentiment we ought to have in these things. You know, you're just an object of God's mercy. It ain't like you did anything special. You're a beneficiary of the covenant, and you didn't do anything to be a part of the covenant, right? So if we're eternally saved, it's strictly by the mercy of God. And if that person's eternally saved, that's going to be by the mercy of God just as well. And that's how we should be about it. That's how I see it practiced a lot of times, but I see it practiced in the opposite direction among old Baptists. Kind of the, the error is like, if he ever pet an old stray dog, he must be a disobedient child of God. You know, you don't know that either, right? You may have some feelings in your heart. You may have seen some evidence in their life that make you think, well, I don't know, I think they might have a spiritual mind. But to make that ironclad declaration is not your purview. We don't know these things for sure, but what we do have is a duty in the here and now in the kingdom of God to try to encourage those people to come to the kingdom of God and be instructed in His Word. You want to really know and have great assurances that this person is a child of God? Put them in contact with the Word of God and see it you know, take root in their lives and grow and see them grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. That would be the greatest assurance you could have that these people are truly God's children. I would just say this, if you've been prone to making that error of declaring someone regenerate and bound for glory just based on some external evidences that has no profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, put something in front of them. Give them some spiritual food. Talk about a Bible verse. Share something about what's going on in your life. Those things could be very profitable to them. And I think that's the proper way to handle it. Put out some sheep food, right? Put out a little food for people. And uh, you know what? They may not completely turn their lives around and uh, run to the old Baptist church and in three or four years become the next elder and, and pastor in your local assembly. But they might have a little nibble. You know what I'm saying? They might be just starving to death out there, and they've never really had something to eat on spiritually. And you put something out there, and they get something out of it because they have the ability to feed on spiritual things. Well, I've set that before you. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, that's the part we ought to be focused on. <laughs> Don't be focusing on trying to presumptuously say who's going to hell. And instead, focus on cleaning up your own house, right? Depart from iniquity. Some people on the internet, if they focus the amount of attention they spend on reviling others, if they, if they spent that cleaning up their own house, they'd be in much better shape. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. And if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. There's an element of taking care of your own house, straightening up your own affairs, and living as you ought that is tremendously beneficial in the service of God and within His house. 
Flee also youthful lusts, but follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. There's an audience involved in these things. If you're following righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart, that's not going out and doing that with all your drinking buddies. You see what I'm saying? There's some people who say, I'm going to go off and do these worldly things, but somehow in that, you know, I'm thinking spiritual thoughts or whatever. This is talking about being in the company of God's people. It has an influence on you. How many of you, if you're raising kids and they start hanging out with a bunch of kids who are getting into all kinds of trouble, do you have enough sense to say, you don't need to be hanging out with those kids. You can't go hang out with them. Everybody realizes if that sort of thing happens, it's not going to go well. It's going to end badly, right? But do we in our lives, we look around and say, well, but I can not be with God's people, allow the influences of all sorts of carnalities to come into my life, and it really won't affect me. It won't affect my spiritual growth. It most certainly will, just as surely as it would your children if you let them run around with the wrong crowd. So it's a call to be with God's people, and you should take advantage of it. And that's more than just attendance. That's actually having conversations with people and entering into, you know, what's going on in your life. Foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. Well, that's a mention of those things that we've got to avoid anyway. There's a lot of foolish questions that could stir things up for no good purpose. Verse 24, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach and patient. This is speaking specifically of a minister, but I want to impart it to you as someone who is in some measure trying to live an example before others and maybe trying to instruct your friends about things you know and and bring you comfort from the Word of God. You're going to have to be patient in those matters. You do not often come off with some eloquent statement about what you believe the Bible teaches and see a, a flash of light and a voice from heaven And there's a Damascus Road experience where somebody says, I have seen the light and now I believe everything just like the old Baptists do. Doesn't happen. I mean, it can happen. God can do it. I don't want to rob God of the ability to do it. But it does not often happen. And spiritual progress is usually pretty slow. There's a reason we're described as sheep. We're not too quick on the uptake of these things. And people need to be shepherded. And that takes some patience. And you'll deal with some objections and some frustrations associated with that. But you stay patient and you you go on as in verse 25, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. You see, many people believe things, even Christian people, they believe things that if you hold them side by side, they don't make any sense. They are in opposition to one another. That's exactly what Jesus Christ was speaking of when He said, the Scripture cannot be broken. If you take that idea and they're opposing themselves, He's saying, the way you're handling the Scripture is broken. It's wrong division. So you're going to encounter people who are opposing themselves. And it may be very upsetting to them when you point out this self-opposition. It's embarrassing if, if people value the matter of being consistent in these things. So you have to be patient and meek about it. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. There's people in my ministry, I know of people that I've t- had conversations about the matter of works versus uh, grace salvation and have pointed out some of these contradictions, and you can see the gears turning in their head. They're like, yeah, that literally doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And yet they can't turn from it. They just won't repent from it, right? There's a lack of repentance in the matter. And some of it is is to save face at times. I think people are embarrassed by how little they've thought about spiritual matters occasionally. 
But we're to be patient and meek in how we do that. And that's not always been the track record of yours truly or of other Old Baptists. I mean, Old Baptists have had a reputation at times of being kind of nasty about this stuff. And that's not patient or meek. So we need to be careful about that and um, mindful of it as we enter into those conversations. And recognize, you know, maybe God's going to grant them some repentance. Maybe it's not going to come in this moment. Maybe this is too much to handle in the moment. But maybe a year from now, two years from now, you know, you cast your bread upon the waters and hope that it will return at some point. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. These confusing things that confound the minds of Christian people. It's a snare of the devil is the way the Bible literally talks about it. It really does ensnare them in things. And um, it can be difficult to get them to see that and to get them to admit it or to come to the truth. But you're always going to be ensnared when you're looking at yourself instead of looking at what God has done. The, the ultimate way to get out of that snare is to recognize it's not about what I've done, it's about what He's done. He abideth faithful. If you can keep remembering that anytime you run into these things, well, you got to do this, that, and the other thing, or you're not going to be eternally saved. Well, He abideth faithful. That's what the Bible says. My salvation is based on what He's done, not on what I've done. And that is a great deliverance in the minds of people when they come to recognize that. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.